Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Ezra Klein and Tanahasi Coates. Um, you know, I, I wanted to start uh, where all um, uh, intellectual conversations should start, and that is at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, <laughs> I see Anon is in the house. This, right, is, right, 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 right there. this is why Trump won. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, we were there <laughs> together <laughs> um, in, uh, what, 2011, I think, and I recall us sitting on a balcony drinking beers, and you were talking about writing this book. Um, or what turned out to be this book. And the way you said it at the time was, and this was long before Trump, you said, um, well, I have this basic theory that what people think about polarization you know, is wrong. This basically goes all the way back to the Dixie Christ. That's what this is. And I was like, wow, that's really great. You really need to write that book. That should be, do you remember me saying this? I, I remember you telling me for a long time I need to write this book. What okay. you're saying now is totally messing with my personal narrative of when I came up with the idea for what became this book. So when did you say I you like came a up? whole different narrative people? in what, my own head. What, 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 what is your narrative? Just my so narrative is that we talked I, about I sold a book right around then um, that was about the forces that drove, that were why policy didn't function in the Obama era. And I, I definitely had a chapter in that book in my head on polarization, and it right. did have to do with Dixiecrats, but it was like about the CBO and the Federal Reserve and the filibuster. Oh, you didn't tell me all of that. And, <laughs> and so in my head, it was this very, very different book. But yeah. you're, what you're saying there is making me think maybe it was more similar from the beginning. I think so, no, because that was the thing that struck me. Because I, I like, um, and this is you know, a large part of what I want to talk about tonight. I think... Um, we have a narrative in our um, media in general where we lament polarization and we think it's because people are mean to each other, right? Um, folks don't have, you know, lunch together, you know, enough. Uh, we've seen, a, a, you know, a version of this uh, in Joe Biden, you know, um, where there's just not as much, you know, comedy as there used to be. Our, our discourse has coarsened. Um, and one of the things that I was saying this, you know, behind stage is one of the things that really impresses me about this book. This is a very atheist book. It's cold. Um, 
it's, 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 I'm, I'm gonna have that as a blurb. No, Just it's like, true. <laughs> Tana, it's cold. It's cold, cold, man. You, you, there is there are no <laughs> chapters on um, whether you would rather have a beer with you know Bush or Kerry. None of that. You know, there's nothing about you know Lyndon Johnson getting in you know some senator's face and wrangling votes. All of that's absent. What I'm saying is that normally the way we talk about our politics is we have heroes, we have villains, and you know we're trying to aspire to that. Why can't we get back to that? This is a deep uh, uh, systems analysis. And from your perspective, what's wrong to the extent that there's anything wrong? I mean, there's an argument for working as intended. In fact, I think that's within this book. To the extent that, that it, there's anything wrong, it's not a matter of individuals. Uh, it's a matter of actual system. So why, what, why did you approach uh, the writing in that way? I think two things here. One is that I'm a little trapped by what seems to be an instinctive tendency to see things in systems and not people. I don't really believe in people having the choices we think we do. Um, this has been true in just the way I look at the world for a long time. It, it somehow seems natural to me. I see systems more easily than I see people's individual choices. But I've covered politics for like more than 15 years now. And I just don't believe the things people tell me about their motivations because they don't fit. Uh, everybody is more, I think one of the ways that political journalism ends up accidentally lying all the time, and at least misleading, let me say it that way, is that we prize what politicians tell us behind closed doors more than we prize what they say and do in public. So if you're a political journalist and you're getting all this access to senators and White House staffers and the president and so on, and you're getting these very rich, multidimensional explanations, and at the beginning of every policy process, there's a lot of hope, and I bet we can come to an agreement. And you are, in a very honest way, trying to tell the public the secret information you're learning, and then it keeps not coming true. And it's because the secret information is wrong. And it's not wrong because even the politicians are lying. The politicians are wrong. They're wrong about what choice they're ultimately going to make because in that moment, they are in the incentive structure of a conversation where you want to be reasonable and thoughtful and not the incentive structure of Mitch McConnell is going to kill your career. And so at a certain point, you have to step back and ask, why is everybody doing it this way. I think all the time, this is weird, I think all the time about Senator Chuck Grassley, just constantly, right. so all, always. Right. That's, I, that's actually where I was going. I never stopped thinking about. <laughs> no, because immediately I thought about like healthcare, right? Like Obamacare, like that's the, the I mean, this starts off oh, as, Obamacare is like a searing, covering that as a searing experience, but I think a lot about Chuck Grassley because here's a guy, June 2009, I believe it is, it's well into Obamacare fight. He says on Fox News, the individual mandate, that is something that both sides agree should be there. A couple months later, he votes for a point of order in the Senate saying that it is unconstitutional. And something Chuck Grassley argues to reporters like me is he sincerely changed his mind. He sincerely changed his mind, as did every other Senate Republican, including six of them, who or five, six, who at that time were signed on to a bill at that moment when they voted for this other point of order, a bill that included an individual mandate. So they were signed on to this apparently unconstitutional bill. And the thing is, on some level, I believe Chuck Grassley when he says that it felt to him like he sincerely changed his mind. It's just not true in the way we think of that being true. It was sincerely in his interest to change his mind. And so he rationalized changing his mind. And he's not the only one who does that. But at some point when you see that happen enough, you have to stop listening to everything everybody's telling you, not because it isn't illuminating 
into how they are rationalizing their actions, but because it is not what is ultimately driving their actions. Yeah, I think he's lying, and I think a lot of people. Are lying. <laughs> no, I do, I do. I know, but I, I, I want to come back to this yeah. because I, cause one of the questions I had, and I just, if you bracket this off for a yeah. second, you outlined this system, and at the end of it, I was like, well, the kind of person who would elect to participate in this system and would actually try to get to the top of it has to be a different kind of person and has to be comfortable with certain moral compromises like lying to themselves that maybe other people are not. But just bracket that off. Let's let's because I think we haven't, you know, just established the basis of the conversation. Let me ask you, you know, just a bit. Why are we polarized? <laughs> We're polarized because two things here. One, most political systems are polarized, which is simply to say the parties are different. They are clustered around polls. And for a lot of American history, we were polarized. The reason that polarization is treated as a surprise, the reason it is weird, is because there was a mid-century period that was aberrational where we weren't. And we weren't polarized in the mid-century period, going back to our conversation um, at the height of all intellectual discussion at Aspen. Um, we weren't <laughs> polarized because of a four-party system, a confusing mixed political party system that emerged after the Civil War, where you had Democrats more or less as we think of them now. You had Dixiecrats who were basically a one-party authoritarian rule in the South that had entered into a national coalition power-sharing agreement with the Democrats, so long as the Democrats let them continue enforcing racial segregation in, in the South. You had liberal Republicans, you had um, conservative Republicans. And because so many of the disagreements were located inside the political parties, they managed them either, and I really think it's important to say this, sometimes through compromise, that is a story we tell ourselves now, just as often, maybe more often through suppression. They suppressed disagreements because they would have been bad for the parties because they would have broken the power sharing and agreement. suppressed people and suppressed people through that. Person. They felt like the filibuster now is used for everything. That was not how it was in for most of 20th century America. Almost the only thing the filibuster was used for was to stop anti-lynching civil rights and voting rights legislation. That is how the filibuster was used. Um, Dixiecrats controlled another interesting just thing about this. And a lot of this book is institutional analysis, but because there was actually not a competitive political system in the South. Southern Democrats had extraordinary congressional seniority because they never faced internal challenge. And so that meant they controlled almost every important congressional committee. And if you control every important congressional committee, you can completely control the agenda either because you literally control it through, say, the House Rules Committee or you're the Senate Majority Leader. Things like that were very true. But also because you control the other committees. So if you're, say, a liberal from, um, you know, somewhere else, and you are worried, you want to get a healthcare bill through, but a Dixiecrat is running the Energy and Commerce Committee. If you fight them on civil rights, you're not going to get your healthcare bill through. And so the part, there was this tremendous act of political suppression, which only begins uh, rupturing around the Civil Rights Act. But that's why we weren't polarized. While we are polarized is in the aftermath of that, the Democratic Party um, ruptures its alliance with the Dixiecrat Party. They become conservative Republicans. The Liberal Republicans become liberal Democrats. Once you have that ideological sorting, that also opens the gates for what has become sort of a flywheel process of political sorting. So you also have sorting by race. You used to have a lot more black Republicans. Um, now, Democratic Party is 50% non-white. Uh, Republican Party is 90% white. 
you get this religious sorting, the single largest group in the Democratic Party is religiously unaffiliated. Um, Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. Density sorting, um, all cities basically are Democratic. Rural areas, overwhelmingly Republican psychological sorting. And so when the parties become that ideologically and demographically distinct, an actual thing that happens, not a we're being mean to each other, but a true fact about politics is the stakes of political conflict rise and the depth of disagreement increases. And so you have a lot less compromise. You have people much more afraid and angry at the other party, not because they're being assholes, but because the other party very genuinely represents more of a threat to them um, in material terms, in terms of freedom, um, in identity terms, et cetera. So that is why we're polarized. Yeah, I mean, and so for me, like in, in many ways, this book was a, a book about race. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's at the core of so much of, you know, what, what you're talking about here. And, and I think also, you know, another thing that needs to be added is to some extent we were always polarized. Uh, it is just some people were erased from the electorate. Uh, so if you went to Mississippi, I don't know, 1910s, 1920s, the majority of people living there were African-American, but they effectively did not exist in the politics of Mississippi. Um, and maybe not in the same numbers throughout the Deep South, but certainly large numbers of voters, you know, people who would have been a voters basically were erased from the electorate. And so um, a lot of these, you know, pleas for the halcyon days of comedy and, and, and bipartisan, uh, bipartisanship, a pleas for the peace of the conquered, you know, um, a peace that, you know, happens as, as a result of, you know, basically allowing a large swath of the country to do as it, you know, do as it pleases. Um, there are a lot of myths that are, you know, dealt with um, in this book. And, um, and I think that's not by the way, incidental to the fact that so much of the book is about race. Um, let's talk about the two, 2016 election um, and this great debate uh, between uh, identity politics and um, what is that other phrase? Um, economic- uh, Anxiety. Econ I'm sorry, I'm a little hungover. Economic anxiety. <laughs> um, true facts. <laughs> I'm doing good though, right? I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm not being nursed in a hangover. <laughs> I just miss a word or two. Um, <laughs> just hanging out with some Brooklyn cats yesterday. This is what I get, right? This is what Brooklyn does to you. Um, so between uh, uh, economic anxiety, uh, identity politics, uh, one side saying, uh, and I'm going to try not to butcher this argument. I mean, it's pretty clear what I think. But um, <laughs> one side, you know, essentially saying that, you know, it was the economic anxiety, particularly of the white working class that, you know, led to the election of Trump. Um, the Democratic Party's focus on uh, bathroom, you know, rights and, you know, other quote unquote identity issues as opposed to, you know, hardcore, you know, economic, you know, working class uh, pocketbook issues um, that decided the election. Um, to the extent that that's a fair summary, um, wh wh where did you come down on the debate? strongly. <laughs> I come down strongly on that debate. I, I kind of hate this debate because in arguing that it is just a hundred percent or almost as close to it as you can clear in the data that there is no reason to believe economic anxiety elected Donald Trump, just actually no reason to believe it. You end up seeming like you're saying sometimes that economics don't matter. And that's actually just not true. It would be, economics are very important in politics. Um, they're important to people's lives. It'd be good to have a good economy. But among other things, Donald Trump himself thinks the economy is a miracle right now, thinks it's the best economy we've ever had. 
Have you noticed him become a lot more open and tolerant and gentle in his approach to politics? And the answer, of course, is no. Um, he thinks the economy is good and still wants to build a wall across the border, thinks the economy is good and doesn't want to let people in from shithole countries. And this is, it just runs very deep. What I will say is that I do think one of the really interesting things in the literature there is that you cannot find evidence that people who are more economically anxious in general voted for Trump. If you're going to try to find that, first you have to cut race entirely out of the equation. Um, so first you have to say it's only white people who are economically anxious who are voting for Trump. So already I would argue you're beginning to overfit the data, right? Already, if it's economics, well, then why is it only white people's economics? Why is that economics so different? Um, but then even after that, it's not the most economically anxious white people who vote for Trump in a lot of cases. Um, true in the primary too, by the way. And one thing though that is interesting is it does seem that there is a relationship. The kind of smart, like unity politics way of cutting the argument is to say that it's both. It's of course, you have economic anxiety in that catalyzes racial resentment. And it does seem in the data it's actually a synthesis, but the opposite way, that it's racial resentment catalyzing a certain kind of economic anxiety. So the most racially resentful Americans in the data are the most economically anxious before Donald Trump wins. They are the ones who express the most concern about the economy. Um, as soon as he wins, they become the most economically optimistic, which is only to say that our opinions about the economy are just like everything else filtered through our opinions about other things. Um, if you liked Obama a lot and you thought he was doing a good job, you were somewhat less concerned about the direction of the economy. You trusted that he was going to do his best and figure it out. If you hated him and what he represented and were scared about how the country was changing, among the many things you're upset about was you looked at the economic data and said it was terrible. But what changes people's opinions on that doesn't turn out to be the economic data. It's moving from a liberal African-American president to, in this case, a conservative-ish um, white backlash president. So it just, it's not there in the numbers. You know, I, gotta, I was going to ask this later, but I got to ask you about something. This was something that, you know, was in the book. And I, I admit I've seen it in quite a bit of, you know, poli-sci literature. So I'm sorry to make you answer for this. But what is the argument for using terms like racial resentment um, and racial, racially conservative? There are a number of people who I would argue not without cause would say, racist is probably what that is. I can't answer for all political science on this. Um, what I, The only thing I'll say on this is that one reason I think they're being a little cautious there is that what they're measuring, if you look at those questions they ask, are not direct questions that um, they can't ask. Well, that's because people lie, Are you right? racist because they lie? So it's questions that are measuring something that is supposed to get at it and that ends up correlating with basically in a lot of cases racist behavior. Although I will say to be fair to debate in the profession, there are people who say this racial resentment index doesn't even measure racism. It's measuring an actual form of economic conservatism. So it's questions like, do you believe it is, um, basically it's a question like, do you think it's personal, do you think it's personal bad decision-making or structural factors that, um, keep African-Americans from getting economically ahead. And it's a bunch of questions like that, that, uh, and I don't remember everything on the data, uh, on the question set, which is why I'm being a little careful on how I answer it, but it's stuff that is like poking around a feeling as opposed to being able to get at the core of it. I will say this is a problem with a bunch of this social science, not just here, the social psychology stuff I have in the book. You're oftentimes trying to figure out something through 
survey questions that don't measure the thing exactly because people will lie about the thing exactly or they don't even realize it themselves. And so you're getting at things that I think are there, but you're definitely losing something in the translation. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, just again, this is me personally. Um, like, well, actually not me personally. I think a lot of people feel this way. But when you have like half of an opposition party or somewhere around there saying, you know, the president of the United States is a Kenyan Muslim. And you note also that there's a fairly long tradition of asserting that African-Americans are not of here, you know, go back to Africa, that, that sort of thing. It, it, does not, it does not feel like much of a leap, you know what I mean, to say that, well, that's probably a racist belief, you know? I would definitely agree that that's a racist belief. Um, I call the scale what they call the scale, but I would not by any means take it as saying that a lot of this isn't just racism. They just have this thing that is trying to measure something like it, but doesn't measure it exactly. And I think for reasons like that, right, that's why I also think you don't want to rest everything on these scales. Like you might have this index that I do think it's at least partially correct that what it's measuring is a form of economic conservatism in which in a lot of directions you discount structural factors. There's evidence that it applies to how they think about people on this uh, scale, think about white people. I think mostly the evidence is on the side of people who say it does measure a form of racism, but it's also going to miss other things um, like that. This is not going to tell you why so much of the Republican Party bought into he's a Kenyan Muslim. Like it just won't. And so if this is the only thing you're using, you're going to miss a lot of politics. You know, one of the things that one of the points you make too in here is that uh, increasingly our, our political I identification uh, matches onto all of our other identification. There's a moment I believe in the book where you are interviewing Obama and he's lamenting the fact that how I guess somebody feels about you know abortion or how somebody votes um, somehow obviates you know uh, them taking their kid to little league you know practice or whatever. Where this becomes the the the, the totality of everything. And I, I was texting I was texting Ezra as I was reading this book two days ago. Um, and I was, <laughs> one of the things I was saying is, you know, one of the um, interesting things, and you actually did get to this later in the book, you know, uh, I think you did, maybe you did say, it, just wait, just, you know, cool your heels, I'll get to it. Because you did, because one of the interesting things is actually the African-American community is, is aberrant in that, in that sense. You know, that, you know, you, even if you are, like there's a kind of conservatism that you find among African-Americans that really has no representation in the Republican Party at all that it, it maps differently. But putting that aside, uh, you could just speak more about that, about you know how um, it came to be that you insult somebody you know, who's liberal by telling them they drink lattes. Yeah, this is just perfect. I actually wanna like inflate the point you made over text. I think it's really interesting. So one of the things I talk about in the book is the way that over time you've developed this super powerful form of identity politics, which I, like one of the projects of this book is changing what that means so that it is not just a term that is used to dismiss or diminish the concerns of historically weaker or marginalized groups, but it's actually understood as something that everybody is doing all the time. Everybody's got identity. And more than that, identity politics are most powerful when they're least noticed. That's usually when the identity is so strong that nobody else can get anything onto the agenda, and then it collapses into invisibility. So one of the examples I use in the book is that when every presidential cabinet forever was all white men, I mean, that's not identity politics. That's just presidential cabinets. As soon as you say, well, it's going to be half women, well, now you're practicing identity politics. But the identity politics became weaker in that moment, not stronger. And that's the opposite of how we talk about it. Um, 
But as we had this big sorting by identity, one of the things that happened, which is just weird, is that you began to be able to tell all kinds of things about a person from one little piece of information. So just one of the examples I use is that House Democrats represent 78% of all Whole Foods in the country, but only 27% of all Cracker Barrels. And that isn't to say, like, Whole Foods doesn't only want to serve Democrats and Cracker Barrel doesn't only want to serve Republicans. Um, it happens to be that those places map on to other things that also map on to our politics. But I was texting about you. You were texting me. I'm saying one about of the things is this. you know a lot of black people who like Whole Foods and Cracker Barrel. Right. And, and a lot. And, I mean, you're looking at one. They have great pancakes. Yeah. And <laughs> and so this is super. This is a super important thing. And it's one reason the Democratic Party is actually pretty different in how it operates in the Republican Party, because this sorting this incredibly deep sorting by not just ideology, but like where you live and what your cultural preferences are. And even in a very deep way, psychology, like, are you open? Like, are you high on this openness to new experiences measure? Are you optimistic about change? Are you, do you love tradition? It is true for white Americans and it's not true. It is not sorted this way for African-Americans because the Republican party has been so hostile to African-Americans that they're almost all in the Democratic party. And so the Democratic party, unlike the Republican party, has to deal, like has to build coalitions internally that include not just liberals, but actually conservatives. There are a lot of African-American voters in the Democratic party who, if you look at these psychological measures, are very conservative in the sense of an actual conservative temperament right? Not like, what budget do you support? But how do you feel about change? What do you want to see in the world? The Democratic Party has to be super coalitional in this way. And that really changes it. Um, the Republican Party is 75% conservative, the Democratic Party 50% liberal. And when you look at these, these books about political psychology, there's a very good one called um, Prius or Pickup by Mark Hetherington, and I think it's John Weiler. But they have this big asterisk in all their data, which is that this huge psychological sorting of fixed versus fluid people it's just white Americans because the non-white um, folks are so deeply in the Democratic Party. And that really, really, really changes what it means for the Democratic Party to like to win and wield power in it. And then Democrats also have to win over these center-right voters because of geography in the country and how that maps onto our politics. So there's a lot in here that's like about a system affecting both parties, but it doesn't affect them equally. And that's something that I think is often really missed. I was thinking about this like when I was coming over. Um... Yeah, and I was like wondering, like, what is the inverse of like latte sipping, you know, wine track, whatever, I mean, that insult is, um, arugula eating. Like, what is that? Like, if you said to me, you know, uh, ha ha ha, that guy likes NASCAR. Like, I wouldn't, that wouldn't have much resonance for me as an insult. I think it, I think there is more there, actually. Okay. To, so to, what is to be it? fair, I think that um, there, to, to try to be generous on this, no, to a view I don't always yeah. agree with. There is a very strong view on the right that there's a kind of constant cultural condescension towards, I think you would call it lower educated whites, but I don't actually even think that's who they feel it's aimed at. But it's a... Oh, like King of Queens, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Right. That okay. kind of thing. Well, you got but, this dumb white guy and his... Yeah, and I think they feel... and. I think they I think their argument too is not just that it operates in this latte sipping, right? These sort of cultural signifiers that don't mean that much. I mean, you would have a bit of it, right? I would say you think about the way liberals would look at the Duck Dynasty guy, right? Like gun toting, camo wear it, right? Like there's some of that. But I think more what they feel is that 
liberals have such total control of culture that being Christian and being like a traditionalist older white who doesn't know the right pronouns and doesn't know how to talk about things, that it's not even just that you get this latte sipping thing. It's that you're you're being pushed out of acceptability in the culture, right? And something I argue in the book is that there's a weird imbalance of power where the left holds a lot of culture or, fear, or, or at least the right feels it holds a lot of cultural power and the right holds a tremendous amount of political power but feels like that power matters less. And in some ways, like the two sides want the power the other one has. Like the left wants the political power to change economics and the right wants the cultural power to decl- like to keep control of the American narrative functionally. I mean, it's just hard for me to reconcile that when, you know, we're in Oscar season and the leading film stars three old white dudes. And that's not like an aberration, you know? It's... um. But the question I'm trying to ask is what is what is the um what is the way that is manifested as a rallying cry in the politics? Like the example you use yeah. is from a political ad. You yes. know, where it's actually the anti-Howard Dean ad. Yes, 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 to manifest votes. What is the reverse? Like you like I just I haven't maybe there's a mocking duck dynasty ad that, you know, no, liberals I use think, to rally I think, voters. No, you know I, I mean? will but, I agree with this. I think that um in the space of actual politics. There is a tremendously powerful political correctness that operates in favor of downscale whites. That's not true in culture, I don't think. Um, I think that there, I think the complaints on culture are much more real. But I think the amount of energy that goes into policing how like downscale Trump voters are spoken about, the amount of energy that goes into making sure that their concerns are heard and understood sympathetically including energy that I put in, but that is not put the opposite way. Look, this is a point a million other writers have made, but the way that white Americans who supported Donald Trump are treated versus the way African-Americans who supported Louis Farrakhan are treated, real different. Like there isn't that, there isn't that willingness to say, well, you know, they, they, there's some good points there. You know, people are people are mad about their economic condition, and so they're 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 getting <laughs> right. behind a demagogue. Right. There was a writer in the Guardian a couple of years ago who called this populist correctness, and I really like that term. Um, that it like this is a very powerful form of identity politics, um, and it's well policed. You know, I think one of the things that's happening in culture is, um, as opposed to politics, is it's almost as if to the extent that you see like actual real power changing you actually do see it in the culture. So this is why like, like Black Panther is infuriating the people. Like it's actually like, in, and it, it has nothing to do with the content, but you get all of these sort of response. Like, why do I have to like this? Why is this being rammed down my throat? Why is this, you know? And, 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 I, and I think what's happened is people who previously did not have power and I say gone with the wind age now have power. Like they have actual, like Shonda Rhimes has actual power to actually affect what you're going to see on your television. This to me is such a, um, like an underplayed part of the, like the political moment right now. Rebecca Traster has this, she has a way she talks about this that I really like. Um, I think she calls it, and I, I hope I don't get this wrong from memory, discernibility. That people can see it. When things are changing and new groups are gaining power to put, to be represented in culture, to see their cultural preferences um, made real, to be represented in politics, it's noticeable. And the loss of power 
uh, among people who used to have it in an unquestioned way is felt and it is responded to and is powerful. And I talk about that in here and I actually, and I will say like, you can't pretend that isn't a loss. It doesn't feel like a loss. But one of the hard things about that is on the other side, it's not yet a win. It's not like what has happened is a power shift to a new dominant majority. So there's some kind of like, and now there's been 200 years of things going the other way. It's like the very beginnings of something, right? The very beginning, like the first African-American president ever, ever. And the response to that is Donald Trump, right? Like the response is this huge backlash. And it's like that in a lot of things, right? This fury over, um, like that there's been too much cultural celebration of Black Panther. It's like you get like one, one Marvel movie. movie. I remember one, Ben Shapiro one. had this rant about how <laughs> right. like there was already Blade. Right, right, right. Like, <laughs> and, and so this is a, this is what I mean though. That Wait, no, of, you know what it was? It was um, Wakanda is not real. And then like what a bunch of people pointed out was he's like this huge Star Wars and Game of Thrones fan and all these other... <laughs> So it's like, but actually, you know, I, I think he, he's very perceptive in that because I think, it, you know, and this is kind of what you're, I think we don't always realize the extent to which the culture actually interacts with the politics. You say something in, in the book about, uh, and I'm going to mangle this, but basically the effects of demographics are not felt in the immediate, in the immediate moment. You know, it's later that it happens. And I think it's actually the same way for culture. Like I think those who perceive a threat symbolically from Barack Obama are kind of correct yeah. because their kids are going to grow up and they're going to remember as, you know, like the great authority figure, you know, this guy who, you know, was African-American. And you have to believe, as I believe, I think that if it matters that all the other presidents before them were white, that, you know, if I, when I was a kid growing up in West Baltimore and I looked, it looked like no black person could be president, that had effects, then this has to have an effect too. Yeah. You know, it may not make it all good, but it has. So if you are the kind of person who may be thinks being white is important, if you think we, white identity is important, that might be threatening to you. That it, might it feel is, like it a is loss, threatening. You, like everything said. we know is that it's threatening. Like it really is different. Um, I have a line in the book, and I would not take the numbers I use here seriously, but that culture runs 10 years ahead of demographics and politics runs 10 years behind and economics probably runs like 50 years behind. Right. That's the one I'm just yeah. mangled. And so, but that's why it's also unstable because the cultural power is moving faster, right? Nike making Kaepernick um, a spokesman. Like that is part of who they're appealing to, right? You're not a sports fan. You said that in the world. Did I say it wrong? <laughs> and it's funny because I've already had it corrected and I, yeah, I'm not a sports fan. Kaepernick? Kaepernick. Sorry, sorry. I was going to let you go, but now I was like, he's not taking me down with him. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> Kaepernick, I'm sorry. But so Nike making <laughs> Nike making Kaepernick a spokesperson. I said it there, right? There. You said it right there. There, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Um, that, that's because they want to win the future, right? They want young people, which are like young America is much more diverse they want urban America. And I don't just mean that in like an old certain, like actually like they care about cities. Um, culture comes out of a couple, primarily, particularly television culture, a couple of very big blue cities. And so culture is trying, and brands too, right? Like brands want, when you do cable news, they don't care how many people watched. They only care how many people watched between 18 and 40 years old. They actually don't, like it's the demo. 
you will get these numbers and you're like, well, we had 2 million people. Like, no, no, no. What you had was 400,000 people because the only thing the advertisers care about is the demo. Um, we're going to have the Super Bowl in a today. Today we're going to have the Super Bowl. Because <laughs> I love sports. <laughs> um, I, just, I just wait all year for the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> it's on my calendar. This is why I do events like this on Super Bowl day. Um, I, you know, but, I looked at this. I was like, who scheduled this? <laughs> I'm shocked y'all are here. I was like, who scheduled this for Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> yeah, that I did. I did. It was more that I didn't catch it. It was scheduled then. Um, so these things get, there will be some ad at the Super Bowl that we will have four days of fighting over because it was woke, right? Last year is like the Gillette. Is this the best a man can be? Then like a couple years ago, I don't actually remember if it was a Super Bowl ad. It was like a Cheerios ad with a multicultural. Like every year there is some ad that people are mad about. So cultural power is trying to win over like the America that is to come. And political power, if you look at who votes and then whose power is amplified by American geography, it's older, it's whiter, it's more rural, it's more Christian. And so cultural power or political power is operating behind. And then economic power is compounding over time, right? The, it's much easier to do something about an income gap than a wealth gap, for instance. And so the, the racial wealth gap, among other wealth gaps, is just huge and it's not getting better. Um, and so there's a, an, a deep instability in our politics right now where it is not wrong that this sort of Trumpist coalition feels itself losing a power it had, but it's completely wrong to say that it has lost power. And that's disorienting for everybody because they're reacting to loss, but it's not like there's some winner on the other side who can, you know, just sort of move forward with the agenda. And so we're in this like incredibly clenched moment of very, very sharp conflict. You know, I, I was I was trying to think. You know, when I was reading, what was the closest analog I could find? Like in my mind, like as as a black person, how would I, how would, like where a, a moment of power loss feels like it's happening for your group? And the closest thing I could come up to was, um, I guess, relatively early during this Me Too period. There was this shitty media uh, men's list, and a lot of dudes I know who were not on the list were like scared. Like they were absolutely scared, you know, shitless. And not because they thought they, or maybe they thought, like, maybe I did something by mistake. I might end up da-da-da. There was a lot of, you know what I mean, hand-wringing and what does this mean and da-da-da-da. And one of the things that I, I thought about during that period was um, maybe it's good to feel this way. Like, maybe it's good to feel a little lost. Like, maybe it's good to, because what that is is loss of power, right? Like, loss of just being able to go and do whatever you want or feel like or not worry about how people perceive certain things. Um, and I don't know if that's, like, prescriptive. Like, I don't know that that's a thing you can go and say to people. Like, I don't know that you can go say out, hey, I know um, this feels like you're losing X, Y, and Z, but the rest of your countrymen have felt like this for a long time. And you're now getting, you know, I don't know if, you know, welcome welcome uh, to, you know, our world, motherfucker, is actually... Uh, <laughs> It's a hell of a bumper sticker. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a helpful I, bumper sticker. I got a huge amount of trouble a couple of years ago for basically making this argument. So I was writing about affirmative consent laws, this idea that um, in the way like cases of sexual assault are going to be thought about is was there affirmative consent. Um, and the thing that I was arguing, and I want to be careful in how I say it because I did get in like a huge thing, uh, was that there was no perfect equilibrium here that what had happened for a super long time 
was all of this work was being done by women to make sure that to get out of bad situations, to worry about a situation becoming bad, a situation went terribly and then to deal with the trauma afterwards. It's not like there weren't horrible losers in the world before, but that what was going to change was not that I thought this was some great equilibrium we were going to. Affirmative consent stuff is difficult and it's messy and it's, but that maybe it wasn't the worst thing for men to have to experience some of the fear and burden of making sure that the situation was okay, right. that women had been experiencing forever. Now, the way I put it was a little bit more inflammatory that like having the chill spike of fear like, was something that maybe men did need to feel for a while. Um, now, people don't want that. And understandably, nobody wants that. But the thing that... <laughs> But the thing that I do think is important here, and again, this is not how you can, you, nobody should run on this platform of like, you know, welcome, welcome to the new world, <laughs> motherfucker. world motherfucker. But what, I, <laughs> but what I do think is true, and I do think this goes back to Tracer's point about discernibility in, in new systems, is that there was never a perfect equilibrium. There was never like a, a way that there were no losers, that nobody failed, that nobody got something that was truly and genuinely unfair happening to them. The thing, though, that I see with like all the talk about college campuses and political correctness and everything is that the idea that we would move to a system, um, as it changes, the amount of fear felt by the people who are newly exposed, including people like me, right? Newly exposed to the fact that you will be on the unfair side of it versus the concern for all the people who'd been experiencing that until that moment, all the people who'd been in a room hearing themselves spoken about in a terrible way, and also had to worry about how would it come out if they like even just contested the way they were being spoken about in that room or like what they were having to read and it was being like insensitively discussed. People are very sensitive to that loss. Like people want to feel safe in this very deep way. And it's a like it's something that I try to be very sympathetic to in the book. But it's also something that I don't think is going to be some, like the status quo isn't an answer and there isn't some perfect answer coming to, in the way that you talk about the book being atheistic, to be a little Christian about it, it's a fallen world and always has been. And like we can make it a bit better, but nobody's offering something perfect that I think pushes towards some generosity along the way, but but it does push towards recognizing that um, like nobody's inventing unfairness in the year 2020. Yeah, and I think like the the the, the standards that we hold, um, for lack of a better term, revolutionary movements to, and I mean that like you know in the figurative sense, um, the standard that we hold revolutionary movements to, a tend to be different than the standards we hold power to, entrenched power to, but they also tend to be different than the standards we hold revolutionary uh, uh, movements of the past to. If you read about the way the civil rights movement is depicted, say in you know a Taylor Branch book. Um, versus how people think the civil rights movement was. Um, or, you know, it was a, a columnist, <clears throat> you know, it was on this thing about how Kaepernick needs to be more like the civil rights. This is the thing people say all the time. It needs to be more king-like. Um, and But people don't read the polling data that we have, you know, uh, that will, you know, show you very much how the civil rights movement was perceived and how Martin Luther King was perceived in its time. And so I, I think there's some sense that this generation of rebels or this generation of people who are arguing for change or this, you know, generation of, as my buddy yesterday drunkenly called them millenniums. <laughs> so you know how old you sound, millenniums. <laughs> you know, 
but this, this generation are somehow doing something, you know what I mean, that didn't happen in the 60s of all places. You know what I mean? That there's something, you know, unique happening on college campuses that is somehow more fallen, more defiled, and more different than, you know, whatever happens when people ask for change. One thing that I totally agree with that, the other thing that I think is true is that right now there is a weird way in which social media weaponizes the worst or dumbest thing happening at any given moment anywhere. Uh, and you all do this. All of you clapping. <laughs> all of you tweeting right don't, now. Don't clap for that unless you don't retweet shit. <laughs> um, I think about this all the time in the political, the campus political correctness fight. I went to UC Santa Cruz um, like a thousand years ago now. And nothing, I, I adore UC Santa Cruz. Like I feel strongly towards it. Dumb shit happened there all the time, including by me personally. <laughs> and, but it didn't have a mechanism to go national in the way it does now. And the way in which, like, I mean, Fox News, one thing that is fascinating to me about Fox News, and it's actually a way in which it is different than MSNBC or CNN, is it is a, it is a nationalized local news channel a lot of the time. Fox News actually does a lot of local news. Like, I give them credit. It's just a really bad kind of it. And <laughs> they're just trawling the country looking for the something that happened in a town somewhere that is going to activate the demographic threat of their audience. And But this stuff happens kind of all the time and everywhere. So there's this just huge capacity to blow up something somebody said in a movement or um, something somebody wrote or a draft press thing about the Green New Deal that went out accident. Like these things were just harder to do before because there wasn't this ability to make them definitional. You you still had to deal with the mainstream of most movements at most times. Um, and even then, like as you say, Martin Luther King Jr. died with 75% disapproval in polls. He was made into a saint much later and sanitized along the way. I don't know. I think, I think a lot when I'm listening to people talk about anything, are people met dealing with, are they focused on the mainstream of a movement? Or are they looking to, for the parts of it that are discrediting? Because there isn't a movement, including the ones I myself am part of. Like I feel very, very strongly about animal rights and veganism. And there are things that happen among vegan activists that I absolutely do not want to be on the hook for. But I care a lot about that movement because I think the mainstream of it is correct and what it is doing overall is good. Um, you can just tell a lot about where somebody stands as to whether or not they're engaging with the bulk of what is happening in something or they're just looking for the parts of it that they can use to discredit it. Um, like that'll tell you almost more than anything else in the conversation. Yeah. So just one last question before we get to... Um question you guys have submitted you know I, I i you know you very helpfully and it feels like you have to do this when you write a book like this um you submitted solutions which you know i thought were very good at, at the end um which we can all agree on but um more than enumerating what those solutions were i'm interested in the likelihood of them coming about and, and how they might come about so there's a story i think about a lot right and it's one of these campus stories you know it was um i guess a protest at, at yale i believe it was and there was video of this young lady and she's yelling at a professor really loud. She's being really, really rude. And it was, you know, horrifying to a lot of people. It was actually horrifying to me when I saw it. Um, I think they were protesting like Halloween costumes. It's, a Hall it's a this Halloween, Halloween costume Halloween thing. thing. Right. Yeah. 
that we all know about a Halloween costume conflagration it's at absurd. Yale. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. Do you know yeah, what I, yeah, like, I, I that's I know, the thing. I know, I know, I know. Then I found out that uh, Yale has this, uh, or had <laughs> this stained glass um, of like a slaveholder. I want to say it was John C. Calhoun maybe or somebody like that. Um, and they have slaves in the stained glass. Um, and I believe there are buildings on the campus named after Calhoun or some other, you know, retrograde, you know, Southern slaveholder. Um, I, I went to an HBCU, so I didn't have this experience. Um, I'm just saying, um, in case there are any young black uh, high school folks in the audience. Um, but a lot of black people have to go through this. And I thought about how much tension I would be holding if on a daily basis I had to look up at that stained glass window if I had to walk past buildings named after people who thought it was okay to own me and my ancestors, and the institution that was claiming to uh, educate me actually was honoring these people. And then when they tried to get rid of the stained glass window, the only way they got rid of it was somebody that worked in the cafeteria threw like a chair through it. <laughs> that was how the stained glass window came down. <laughs> it wasn't through you know, uh, debate, it wasn't through you know, uh, our normal means and processes that was set up at the university. And thinking about that, you outlined some pretty deep structural problems. Um, and the way people's minds always work is, is, is um, you know, going to, you know, some sort of armed conflict within the country. But I think, you know, being African-American, if you look at African-American progress in this country, it's always linked to wars, actually. It's always a war that happens. There's always some, you know, amount of violence. Even the civil rights movement is, you know, you can't perceive that without World War II, without the Cold War. It's impossible to, to imagine that. And so I, I wonder how much hope you hold out uh, for curing those institutional ills, those deep-seated ills, uh, in a way that we all would find um, peaceable, <laughs> um, in a way that we would like to see. I'm so excited to get to say this to you. I'm not here to give you hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I say that to you? Huh? I know I say that a lot. Yeah, you I say, say that, that yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it, but... <laughs> um, th let me say it differently. So I thought, I, if you read my solutions chapter... That's I, why I love this book, you see? <laughs> it's not a hopeful book. Um, and I don't... Let me say two things about this, because it genuinely... I have this solutions chapter, and if you read the introduction to it, it basically, it's like a hostage video. It's like, I'm doing this under duress because <laughs> the whole point of the book is that we haven't really talked about the big argument, one of the arguments of the book, which is that polarization interacts with American political institutions in ways that make it impossible to do anything. Um, that's why polarization is so particularly destructive in our system. And so the idea that you're going to like pass a bunch of laws to change the entire political structure, if you could do that, you wouldn't have the problem in the first place. So I have this exciting self-negating solution. Um, I thought later of a way I could have done the last chapter that I wish I had, which is I wish I had done a final chapter of scenarios or things that could make this book wrong. Because it's not going to be right for very long, right? At some point, American politics will be different. 20 years from now, I assume this book will be wrong. And Wait, what? what do you mean? Uh, so let me give a couple examples. So one way it could I mean, become like wrong, how become wrong? Okay. It, the the analysis will stop holding, like the particular set of collisions will stop holding. So like one version is what I think of as the California scenario, 
that demographic change just happens with enough power over the next, let's call it 10 years, that Texas turns blue and Georgia turns blue. And the kind and the the really toxic form of politics I am talking about for a fair amount of the book just becomes inoperative. And so it's not that we won't Don't be you polarized. argue against that in the book? Like it feels like what you're arguing is that a lot of the structural stuff actually would prevent that that, that it, from I don't think it can that. I don't think it is a sure thing it prevents it. But as I said, that's one scenario. So another I mean, just to be clear, like I'm thinking about gerrymandering and, and, yep, and that, I totally you know, voter suppression, like all of these other things yep. that would go ahead. Sorry, go on. So that's the optimistic scenario. It's like what I think of as a California scenario. Because we had some of this in California. We had Prop 187, Pete Wilson, like we had a real like white backlash um, form of politics, but it didn't go the disenfranchisement route. What it went was the demographic change route. In other places, at many other times, including this time, it goes the, now this is another version, the disenfranchisement route, which is that geography mixes with political power such that um, Republican control of the Supreme Court, et cetera, just enough laws are passed and enough decisions are made. Things like that are also more subtle, like gutting public sector unions, the Democratic Party loses a key institutional base of support, which happened two years ago. Um, and so what you have is a like a re-establishment, like a retrenchment of this other form of this, like right now, possibly waning form of political power. Another thing that could just change it quite dramatically is war. Like you were saying this with, with racial progress, but something that really changes identity is war. And I'm not sure of this argument, and so I didn't put it in the book, but I don't think it is implausible that part of why American identity felt more stable and creedal in at least our national narrative through a lot of the back half of the 20th century was the Soviet Union, that there was an external threat. And in the first half, you had the world wars. And so that that was actually playing a role that was important in the story we tell ourselves about who our enemies are and who they're not and what unites us and what doesn't. So if we end up in a war with China in 20 years, like I think that's going to change politics pretty dramatically. Um, I can imagine other things related to technological change, but the truth is, I don't think we are going to pass a package of solutions to solve this. I think we are going to muddle through in this situation until something changes it so the unstable balance of power becomes a more stable balance of power. And I could see it tipping towards stability towards different groups and different coalitions at different times, um, depending on the condition we're in. But I think that's the real question. So depending on what happened there, I think you would get some of these other reforms, right? If the demographic change situation moves over Texas and it moves over Georgia, well, then maybe that's a world in which people do get rid of the Electoral College. Maybe that's a world in which D.C. and Puerto Rico are made states as they should be because it is the right thing to do, but also in being made states, the current very large Republican advantage in the Senate becomes smaller because basically it stops overrepresenting white or rural voters quite so much. So I think the thing is, you could see my main sort of argument, which is for democratization happening, but it would only happen in the context of a change in political power, such that political power was wieldable again. And we're not, we're not on the cusp of that. We're not on the cusp of that, no matter who wins the presidency in 2020. Um, and more than that, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is not to offer people solutions, but it's really to offer framework. And one of the things I hope people in politics take from it is it solutions about the system have to move up in political prioritization. So I think a, Obama did not have the support because none of this argument was believed by Democrats in 2008 or nine. But 
if Democrats had at that moment come in and decided the first thing they were going to do was pass a bunch of democratization reforms, get rid of the filibuster, et cetera, he would have had a much more successful and I think stable presidency. But they didn't believe they needed to do any of that. They were still much more operating under the idea that between his magnetism and maybe you could work with the Republicans and like, you know, if you did Romney care, maybe Chuck Grassley would vote for it and so on. That just got disproven. It's done. You need a new theory. My worry right now is that the left has adopted a different form of great man of history theory, which is that if you just get in someone like Bernie Sanders with enough of the right views and who believes in not me, us, and like it'll sweep away these political obstacles, but it won't. I was just over doing the Jacobin podcast and like pushing there that you need a more institutional theory. Um, the reverse version is Joe Biden's like politics of nostalgia, which is that if you just get in somebody who will have drinks with Mitch McConnell, like maybe he'll come around. And like none of these are going to work. Like what has to happen at a certain point is that you have to prioritize making the system work as the first thing you do. Like you just have to. You can't come in and try to spend all your political capital on a bill you can't pass. You have to spend your political capital first, making it possible to pass bills. I don't understand why that is such an unbelievably controversial idea, given that it is obviously 100% true. <laughs> but it is not, it is not widely believed. Yeah. No, it's sad for me. I mean, and then we'll go to questions. It was, it's a, um, like what this book says about politicians um, and their beliefs and their priors. Uh, it was just very disturbing after reading this book. You know, like I, I think you know, about Obama and, and, and you basically argue, and I, I think correctly that stopping Merrick Garland made sense. Like it made political sense from a Republican perspective, you know, it was, and the constant belief that somehow someone on the other side will see the national interest or what you consider the national interest to be fair, what you consider the national interest and therefore, you know, abandon you know, their, their partisan interests um, just ain't working out like that. You know, just ain't working out like that. I think, um, you know, just to answer your question about Sanders, I think part of it is, in presidential politics in particular, it seems like a, a big part of it is flattering the voters. Um, and so you kind of have to flatter what they, maybe you don't have to, I don't know, but I know what a lot of, you have to flatter what they already believe. You know, yeah, um, and I, I think like people believe in some of the myths that you're actually assaulting. Oh because yeah, because some of this is about America's past. On you know on the I mean? left, and, they believe in the myths. I just right. want to say one thing on Sanders before we go. I know we got to go to questions. Right. I just want to say this quickly so people don't misinterpret it. The theory of the left is a popular will theory that the left is right about what people fundamentally want. They want Medicare for all. They want a Green New Deal. They want a more just system. And if they get a clear choice. They will vote for that. And if there's like a sort of organizer in chief, they will organize around that. And, and that will be what you use to sweep away um, some of these problems. And the, the only point I want to make on that is that if you believe that theory is somewhat true, and I believe it is somewhat true, I'm actually not against it. The problem right now is that the popular will doesn't translate into political change. It is not that Democrats haven't won majorities, at times even big majorities. Um, Barack Obama had some very big majorities and much bigger in the Senate than any Democrat is going to have in 2021, it is that if the popular will does not is not enough to get you power, and even if it does get you power, is not enough to actually make change, that itself becomes demobilizing to the very people you promised everything to in the first place. Having won this great victory with you and then seen it turn into half loaves and quarter loaves and compromises and frustration, 
they begin to disengage again because they were promised something better. They were promised real change. And so I think it is most important. The Republican Party, in some ways, to its credit, does not have a popular will theory of politics. That's not the argument right now. Um, in many cases, it's turning pretty outrightly against small-D democracy, like read the new George Will book. The Democratic Party does have this sort of theory of democracy, but they don't have any real theory ranging all the way from the left to the center-left of how to make America into a place where democracy is enough to govern. And like that's a, a huge problem at the center of a lot of political thinking right now among a lot of people that I respect and admire what they're trying to do. So I think this actually was something that, you know, I think, again, we were texting about also. Um, and I think this is really important. So the, the first question is, how do we counter the Fox News propaganda machine? But I think the deeper question here is one that I think comes up a lot, you know, in these conversations. And that is, how do we convince poor whites to start voting in their own interests? And if you would, um, I think, just expound just a bit on what um, people commonly perceive as interests and what yeah, the left a greater has a, expectation when the, of interest When might people be. on the left say poor whites are voting against their interest, what they almost 100% of the time mean is that the democratic program of economic redistribution would be in the financial interest of poor whites. And that, I think, is often very true and is also a narrow and misleading understanding of interest. I mean, among other things, you might say, if white voters start voting in their interest, Bernie Sanders will not vote for Medicare for all because he's rich and has health care, so it's not in his interest. But of course, Bernie Sanders doesn't vote just in his economic interest. He votes to express what he believes is good about the world. He votes in his group's interest. He votes, um, he believes, he feels a deep sense of solidarity um, with people who are struggling, and he votes in their interest. And so this mistake of thinking that people are motivated in this very narrow, literalistic way by an accounting of what the tax plan is going to be is just wrong. And we know that as people move up the ladder of political engagement, so the more powerful people in politics, they begin voting even less in their economic direct interest, quote unquote, and more to express identity, to, to express values. I mean, that is true for most of us in this room who care about things that like might raise our tax rates or might make our own lives a little bit more difficult, but will make somebody else's life a lot better. A politics built directly on narrow economic self-interest is just not how politics works. And it keeps losing when you pit it against group interest. Like look in Europe where they do have these very big multi-party systems and you have much more direct collisions of the populist far right and the, the European social democrat left. And the European social democratic left has been losing. And that's because I think to a large extent, they are mistaking what it is people mean when they perceive their interests. Their interest just is a lot bigger than economics and you have to appeal to their identities and their aspirational understanding of the world and their feeling of whether or not political players like them, like they want to feel like their status is going to go up. If they don't feel like that, they're in general not going to vote for you. Social status is an incredibly powerful form of interest. We all live by it every day. And then we somehow oftentimes forget it as we move towards politics. We shouldn't. Yeah. I think, I think like, because the implications of that are not nice to say, like, it's not nice to say that some group of people would like Muslims banned. Like it makes them feel a kind of way to feel that, yeah. you know, like that they feel that that's in their interest, that whiteness is an actual interest and has historically been an interest in American history. I mean, I, you know, when um, folks used to say in opposition to uh, marriage equality, you know, well, you're going to change the definition of marriage. I mean, from their perspective, they were right. Their definition of marriage involved excluding you. 
that was what they actually believed. And I think sometimes people are telling us and we don't really want to hear it. Yeah. Because oh, where, we where it goes is like us. really like, you know what I mean? If you have to say, okay. I mean, not to get off on this, like I think about the deplorables, like how statistically correct Hillary Clinton was, even if it wasn't the right thing to say. You know what I mean? But she said half. I mean, if you look at the data, that was about right. You know what I mean? I, you want to counter? No, I don't want to counter. I like the thing I actually want to say on it is that one of the things I think is bad about the like the economic anxiety debate is not that economic anxiety isn't real, but that it is a convenient way we sanitize opinions that we feel would be insulting to let people say, right? We hear what they're telling us. The amount of time you hear on the campaign trail from voters, the country's changing and I just don't like it. And, and you're like, God, you must really be upset about trade deals. And... <laughs> And it's not, I, I'm not really well, saying that as a joke. Say, oh, it's not the that factory they, left or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like it's could. not that trade deals aren't like, can't be bad or can't be part of that. And there is real evidence. And in places where you really get, did get deindustrialization, there is like a move to the right among some voters, although again, not all. Um, and it's correlated with white voters. But nevertheless, like that is a real thing. It just isn't what they are saying right. to you. Right. Sorry, we have spent a lot of time talking to each other. I lost track of this. We got two more questions and then I'm going to have to let it go. I'm so sorry to you guys. Ezra, yeah, just absolutely fascinating. Um, eventually, it's true. Uh, eventually, even conservatives will have to accept the reality of climate change. Based on your research, how might this change political mega identities? Feel free to quarrel with the premise, if you like. <laughs> um, uh, Sure. Eventually, everybody's going to have to accept that the climate is changing. Um, I worry a lot, and I just did a series on the podcast about climate change, and one of my takeaways from it is that nobody's going to be able to escape climate change, but I think the left is fooling itself a little bit in how much some people will, or how much they will be able to ignore it or spend their way out of it, at least for the next, like, let's call it 30, 40 years. And my like direct, narrow, like near-term concern is that what climate change is going to do is it's going to wipe out the gains and in insulation from natural disaster that like the poor half of the world or the poor half of any country has experienced over the last hundred years. Like I'm less worried about the existential the world like can't be lived on anymore in again in the nearest term than I am that rich people are living in the world of 2040 much as we expected it and poor people are living in with an exposure to nature that is more like 1920 like when bad things happen like a fire or an earthquake a hundred years ago 50,000 people would die that will still happen in some poor countries now but it's rare and that's going to come back and so i don't think people will be unable to ignore that because i think that we are extraordinarily good, one, at ignoring suffering. We do it currently all the time right now. Like air pollution is already here destroying people's lives and we're perfectly happy to ignore it um, in a lot of poor countries. But two, that we will blame people for the condition as we do now of being poor. And that will be why we wipe out concern for their suffering. That will, in fact, reinforce actually some of the identity exactly. stuff they're talking about. That yeah. it'll reinforce yeah. the way we're, I mean, just right now, like the poor are much more exposed to all kinds of harms and ills. And very often we tell stories to explain why that injustice is a result of their choices. Like 
if they hadn't lived in all these houses that were on fault lines and, you know, well, they couldn't afford to live somewhere that was safer, that was more protected from floods, whatever it might be. And, you know, the rich people could. Um, last question. How would one-to-one voting power uh, affect polarization where California voters have the same power as North Dakota voters? And I guess this is taken on like the Senate Electoral yeah. College. That I, sort of thing. I, I think this would actually be like, this is my solution set is just straight up democratization. I think the way American politics should work is that the people who get the most votes should win the most power. And then when they have that power, they should be able to implement their agenda. And then the voters should decide if they like the agenda and whether or not to return the power. And that sounds super sensible when you say it, and then just isn't at all how the American political system works or how anybody seems to be trying to make it work. And the reason I think it'd be better is two things. One is that I think we are trapped. One of the things that makes polarization feel much worse. Look, an argument is fine. It's fine. We can have arguments. And different views are fine. They happen everywhere in every organization you can think of. The problem is if you can never get to resolution, like if you can never like solve the argument. So now you're living on the other side of it. I think about this with gay marriage sometimes because people always bring up gay marriage. It's like, doesn't that show we're not really polarized and persuasion is possible? But I really wonder... If the Supreme Court hadn't brought down that decision, would we have n- a national right to gay marriage today? No, I don't think so. Not. Absolutely not. I don't think I don't think it would have passed Congress. And so, but in the aftermath of it, like people really do not seem to want to roll it back, right? We're we're we live in the aftermath now of a really truly deep argument about what kind of country we should be, but because somebody had the power to resolve it, it has calmed down. And I think a lot of things are like that. Medicare was super controversial. It's not now. Um, I was about to use the Civil Rights Act as an um, example, but one of the other polarization books that just came out um, argues for appealing it. So maybe we're going back. So some of these fights don't end. Like, I don't want to say that every fight gets resolved by passing a, a piece of legislation, but I do think that making it possible for fights to resolve in solutions and people to be, ev- to be able to evaluate is the world we now live in a world where gay people are able to get married, a world where I get healthcare when I'm 65, a world where there's more equality, a world where there's a big tax cut, right? I mean, this happens in the reverse of the way Democrats would like to do. They were not able to repeal most of the Bush tax cuts because they had been passed. And so I think that making America governable by small D Democratic majorities would allow us to have a sort of feedback loop of decision-making that we don't have now. Right now, we're always caught in the argument the fight that never gets truly resolved, as opposed to looking at how something was resolved and deciding, did we like that resolution or not? And I think that increases the stakes of everything and creates an impossibility to settle anything in a way that keeps us like sort of in a constant state of disequilibrium and fury and fear that the other part, that the other side is going to win. It's much, we're much more able to adjust to new realities sometimes um, than you would think given how fearful we are of their imposition. Guys, um, as recline, um, I just want to say really quickly, as I spill the cards everywhere, um, this was a great read. It's an excellent, excellent read. Um, as I said at the beginning, I think uh, a number of books that take on this sort of matter, take on the political system, um, shy away from hard uh, problems that are not reconcilable, that may not say the best things about uh, our mythology, our perception of ourselves as a democracy. Uh, I really applaud you, Ezra, for having the courage uh, to go there to not give me hope uh, as I stand here. As Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Ezra Klein.